striving for it. With that, I'll give you lower C. Hi, everybody. My name is Lois, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Lois. Oh, does that sound good? <laughs> Hi, Lois. I can't go wrong. I'm blessed with so many people who I do know. I've met so many other people I don't know, and I love you all. I love you all. You see, anybody that has the same problem I have, you're my buddy. You're my friend. I don't care whether you're drinking or you're sober. You've got a problem with alcohol, you're my buddy. I know, I don't know what to start. I don't know where to start. I, I have to turn my lead over and, uh, you know, for the last two nights I'm saying to my higher power, maybe we'll talk about this part or maybe we'll talk about this. I've lived so long and I drank so long and I haven't been sober that long, but there's so much to tell that I could not tell it within a time frame. So I just simply asked my higher power to pick out the parts of my story and let me share it with someone. And, and if, if I help only one person in this room, just one person, I will have done, done my job. And because I take, turn my lead over to my higher power, if you hear something you like, I, I ask you not to thank me, but to thank my higher power when you say your meditation prayers tonight. So I have no idea where I'm going to start. No idea. I, uh, the last couple of days, I, you, there's just too much. Uh, to tell, so sometimes I kind of start with what I was like when I came here. Now, there's only one person in AA who really knows me and remembers me as I was, and that's my sponsor. She was the first AA person to see me what I was like, and I can tell you what I was like. Uh, this is the end product of the years of drinking that I did. Typical alcoholic, but of course I thought I was different. From the top of my head to the tip of my toes, I am and was an alcoholic. I had, I, I can tell you my hair. You see, drinking became the most important thing in my life. The most, it became ahead of my family, my kids, my husband, my mother, everything. And I didn't know it. I did not know that alcohol had become the most important thing and how, how I depended on alcohol to function. And I was a closet drinker. I'm described in the big book. They wrote that big book long before I got here, but they wrote it about me. And I think a lot of us can see us when we read some of the stories in the big book or read some of the things in the big book. And, I, and, and as I said, when I was drinking, uh, alcohol, I couldn't do anything without drinking. Towards the end of my drinking, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't function without, and I didn't know that. But I do my hair. You see, I didn't want to spend the money. I was a closet drinker, and I tried to, years and years, I tried to cover up how much I was drinking, how often I was drinking, and how much money I was spending on, on my booze. And, and so to do this, in ordinary, to do, and we alcoholics are the smartest people on earth. We are, I, don't tell me, don't you tell me an alcoholic's dumb. I know better. We, we can get away with so much, and the sad part about it is we think we're fooling other people and we're only fooling ourselves. But I didn't know that. I didn't, I thought I was smart. I had a college degree. I couldn't be an alcoholic, you know. Boy, was I dumb. After my first meeting, when I went into my first meeting, I said to myself, how can a person that's supposed to be so smart be so dumb? We're not dumb. Alcoholics are not dumb. To get away with what we got away with, you have to be smart. And you have to use all the devices, all the manipulations to keep on drinking. 
to keep on drinking. Anyway, the top of my head, I, my hair it didn't look like it does today. Uh, I used to do my own hair. Now, I have a high forehead, and I always wore bangs, you know. And as I said, I couldn't do much without a drink in my hand or on the table beside me. So I would, uh, I, very vain. Oh, we alcoholics are so vain, aren't we? I'd, you know, i got to share with you, and this is recent. I have to kind of draw on my own experience now. Every speaker that came up here, uh, Larry had a suit and a tie on, and all the other women speakers, they wore skirts and pantyhose and everything like that. And... Uh, uh, I, I looked at that, and, and the first thing, when we checked in, uh, they put me up, beautiful, beautiful uh, room in the lodge. First thing, my, my roommate, Arlene, said to me, did you bring a dress? I didn't. <laughs> I didn't bring a dress, because I thought, this is casual. They told me, this is my first time here. This is my first time here. Oh, what a funny way to get here. But anyway, um, so I, I looked and I saw all these speakers. Ten years ago, I would have been beside myself because I didn't have a dress and all the other speakers did. And I know what I want to, if you're new, don't do as I do. Do as your sponsor says. You know. And I had, I, usually I am dressed up, you know, when I leave. But I'm comfortable and I said to some of the gals out there, one of them said to me, are you going out and get low or are you going to borrow? I almost bar borrowed Bob McCormick's pants. I almost asked him. You know, can I borrow your pants a little better? But anyway, 10 years ago, that would have bothered me like crazy. It doesn't today. It doesn't today, especially when you're speaking. What you see is what you get. Yeah, that's it. I have dress boots on. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, my hair was, was a mess because I, I would trim it. Uh, the vein, my vanity, you know, I had to look good <laughs> in my eyes or what I saw in the mirror. So I would trim my bangs. Okay, and I get the scissors out, and you know what your eyesight gets like when you're half in the bag. And my bangs would come up, and they'd go up like this, you know. And I look in the mirror, and, and I wasn't drunk enough, you know. They still didn't look straight. So then I get the scissors out, and I cut them down like this. And this would go on to have another drink. You know. This would go on until I end up with a little fringe on the top. You know. Now. Uh, I'm a woman, uh, I, I used to think, oh, men, these men alcoholics, they can't relate to me. You want to know, we can relate to each other very, very well. Uh, I led down in Beaver County one time, and a gentleman, a wonderful man, wonderful man came up to me, beautiful mustache, and he said to me, I really relate to you. I used to do the same thing with my mustache. <laughs> can you see a mustache up and Anyway, and the other thing I did uh, in, in my vanity, in my self-pride, you know, in my vanity, I would give myself a home permanent because, you see, I reasoned, uh, I didn't like beauty shops because, number one, why should I pay them all the money to, to give me a perm? And, and sitting under that hot dryer for so long, that's valuable drinking time. Yeah. So at home, if I give myself a home permanent... I can, I can drink and give myself the perm. What a marvelous invention, the home perm. And I know men use them, too. I know that. My son did. You know, my son did. Anyway, uh, you know, those of you that have ever used a home perm, how, how, how important the timing is when you get that smelly stuff on. Now, as alcoholics, you also know what happens to a drunk when they start drinking. I heard you guys, you go to the bars and you have a drink and... And, and you lose all track of time, right? Women do too, especially when they give harm permanence. <laughs> you drink, 
And you think, now what time did I start this stuff, you know? And like good alcoholics, well, maybe I better leave it on a little longer or whatever. It's a miracle I still have hair, really. When I got sober, one of the first things I did, I went to a fancy department store in the North Hills and one of the malls, and I went to the, uh, into the beauty shop, and I said, I got, I got this woman, and I said, do something, you know. And she, I didn't know it at the time, but she was new, and, and, I, and I was the first, she got her own chair, as those in, in she got, she was on her own, and I was her first customer. And she never forgot it. And as I went back to her after I got sober, she would say to me, Oh, Mrs. Consulman, I don't understand it. Your hair is so healthy now. And I never knew. See, this is another thing that alcohol, apparently it ruins your hair. You have unhealthy hair when you drink. Did you know that? I've heard people say that uh, hurt, their hair hurt when they drink. But I had unhealthy hair in my beauty shop. Uh, anyway, that, that's another. So that's my hair. Uh, you know. Now, I also had what most alcoholics who can't see well and, and wear glasses, I had alcoholic glasses. Now, all of you know, anybody that wears glasses, you know what alcoholic glasses are. Number one, they're not clean. You know, they're a little foggy. And we see better. We see better when they're a little foggy and smudged and all of that. Usually, you know, we don't have our eyes checked for, and our, and our eyeglass, alcoholic glasses are like this, instead of this. And again, we see better when they're like that. Alcoholic glasses always have a patch of masking tape or adhesive tape, you know, that little screw always comes out there and we always patch them together with masking tape, whatever. So I had alcoholic glasses. And uh, really, alcoholic glasses do help you see better when you're drunk. You know, they do. Um, I have black and blue marks all over my body, all over. I don't know how I got them. I, I just had a propensity for walking into doors and tables and things like that when I was drinking. And, and, and so I had black and blue, blue marks all over my body. I was a little overweight. Uh, that's a nice way of saying I was bloated from all the gin I was drinking, you know. And I, the, other, the other reason I was probably overweight was because at the end of my drinking, I was on that pattern. Drink, eat, sleep. Drink, eat eat, sleep, just perpetual. I didn't know what time of day it was. And, and I would wake up in the middle of the night with that craving thirst. I had to have something. It didn't have to be alcohol. Something cold. I, I called it my, uh, my throat was on fire. And I'd wake up and I'd have to get that. I'd go down to the refrigerator and drink maybe a quart of milk to put out the fire in my throat. The insatiable, not necessarily booze, just something cold to ease that fire in my throat. And then I would come around and I would think, hmm, I don't remember whether I, I ate dinner or not, you know? Now, I was an alcoholic. I knew what alcoholics were like. They're malnourished. So I'd think, oh, well, I don't want to get malnourished. So I would eat. And probably I did have dinner and I ate again in the middle of the night. And this went through the cycle. So that's another reason for my bloated with gin and probably I did overeat. And uh, uh, clothes, I didn't care about my clothes. Uh, so that, that, you know, that's what I looked like physically. There were a lot of other things that were wrong. I, I didn't dress well. I didn't bathe. I didn't have very good. You know, whenever uh, word got out uh, that um, I was the, Bob, Bob said to me this morning, I was afraid you wouldn't come. I said, Bob, when that flyer went out and all my friends heard I was going to be here, I was committed. I couldn't back out at all. You know, I had a guy call me from Florida in December, uh, Pat. 
took me uh, clear out of the blue. And he told me, you're going to Jackson's Mills. Yeah, he said, you're going to love it. So many people told me, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. And he gave me some advice for Jackson's Mills, and I want to share it with you. He said, take a bath, put on clean underwear, and help others. <laughs> I thought about that. And I thought, I guess that's the way they do it in West Virginia. You know what I did this morning? I took a bath. I put on clean underwear. And helping others is up to my higher power. (laughs) Pat's great. He called me at 6.30 on Friday morning to to say, have a good time. 6.30. The phone rang and I thought, God, something happened to one of my kids. You know, something happened. With Pat. Pat tells me Larry 12-stepped him many moons ago in West Virginia. He's from West Virginia. Anyway... God, uh, we're, we alcoholics, you know, we get sober. That doesn't mean we get sane. But uh, now that, that's, that's what alcohol did to me physically. Uh, spiritually, I have to share, I have to be honest and say, you know, I was not one of those alcoholics that lost my faith in God. In fact, all the time that I was drinking, I did believe in, in a loving God. I somewhere along in my uh, in my life, I came to believe in a loving God. But I went to Sunday school. I taught Sunday school all through my drinking, and every Sunday morning I would spend an hour. And I taught kids who were in sixth and seventh grades. You know, the kids that are so anxious to be independent and the kids who don't want to do what their parents want don't want to dress the way their parents and are you know are anxious to get out and get away from their parents control and I loved them because all through my drinking I was at their maturity level they had parents I had an old man (laughs) he was the same I could identify with what I could relate to them and they loved me they love me. I, I did an awful, my first year of sobriety, I had a lot of guilt from what I had done to those kids. I was not afraid of the kids. I was afraid of what the parents thought. That's funny. We're worried about what other people think. And I wasn't concerned about those kids because I was just like them maturity-wise. And they say, when you start drinking, you stop growing. You stop maturing. And that was me. And every Sunday morning I'd go and I'd spend an hour with those kids. We did a lot of fun things. Me and I was loose. They loved me. Oh, yeah. Like no other Sunday school in the Presbyterian church that I went to. I tell you. I tell you. And every, every after Sunday, the hour of Sunday school, I'd go to church. And I'd sit there and I'd sing the hymns, which I loved. And I'd say the prayers that I loved. And I believed in this God. And every Sunday morning the guilt would come and I'd say... God, please help me be a good mother. Please help me be a good wife. Please help me be a good daughter. And I really believe that God would help me. But when you're an alcoholic, sometimes just religion won't work. It didn't work for me because I continued to drink. And those two hours in the end on Sunday morning in church were the only two hours that I was sober and I wasn't even fully sober. But I was there and I believed. That's the spiritual. Probably the biggest toll was on my head. 
You know, they say alcoholism is a threefold disease, physical, spiritual, and emotional. And that's probably where I was the most screwed up. I'll tell you, I never want to be like that again. And I know if I pick up a drink, there's a good chance I'm going to be right back where I started from. I was crazy. I was insane. And at the end of my drinking, you see, I tried to quit drinking on my own. December 26, 1978. Worst year of my life. Worst year of my life. December 26th, I tried to quit on my own. And I used my smarts. And I used my willpower. And I used my church God. And I successfully stayed sober for a period of maybe uh, December 26th. And my son's birthday was February 6th. And in the day of my son's birthday, he was in the kitchen saying, Mom, I think you better go to bed. What happened in that period? So trying to stay sober on my own did not work. It did not work. Not at all. Uh, day before I came, before I called AA for help, I was convinced I was nuts and I was no good to anyone and I was calling for help. But I didn't call AA. I called the mental hospitals. I called Western State Psychiatric. I remember this. I wasn't that far gone. But again, I tell you, I couldn't do anything unless I had a drink in my hand. And I called Western State Psychiatric and I said, you got to put me away. I'm no good. I'm bad for my family and I'm bad for this. I have to be put away. And they said to me, we can't take you unless you have a physician's referral. Rejection. What does an alcoholic do with rejection? Drink some more. But we're undaunted. Yeah, alcoholics are undaunted. So I called Mayview or Western, I wanted them. I called another mental hospital. And I said, you got to put me away. I'm bad. I'm a danger to my family. I, I'm crazy. you got to come, send someone and come and take me away. And they said the same thing. We can't take you unless you have a physician's referral. Like any good alcoholic, I felt rejected, and now I began to get angry. <laughs> What's wrong with them? I'm crazy. They ought to come and take me. I'm, they better send Then my next call went to, and there's a radio station in, in Pittsburgh that is KDK Call for Action. And you can call, you know, and you can pay. So I called KDK Call for Action, and boy, I'm ready to give them a piece of my mind. And the lines were done. They were closed. I'd forgotten. They closed at 1 o'clock. By this time, it's 1 o'clock, so you can know how much I'm drinking all this time. Boy, that doesn't stop an alcoholic like me. My next call was to the TV station. And at that time, KDKA TV had Lynn Sawyer, who was the consumer advocate. And I rationalized, I'm a consumer. I need help. She'll find a way to get me into um, an institution where I belong. Well, I didn't get Lynn Sawyer, but I got some poor woman who was on the line, and I began, and you know, I, you know, my, when I drank, I got mouthy, and I was going on and on and on, and I don't know what, by this time, I'm really in a bag, I don't know what I said, I have no idea, but I do know this, that the paranoia that every alcoholic has began to sit in, and I'm thinking as I'm talking, oh, oh, she's going to trace this call. 
she's going to find out who I am and where I live. And she's going to send the men in the white coats after me. And that's the reason I was calling. But when the reality of the situation set in, I slammed the phone down and drank myself into complete oblivion. That's what we are. And now I know, you know, we learn so much in hindsight. Now I know that I was in such, I would rather be crazy than be an alcoholic. And that's something. Isn't that something? I tell you. Anyway, uh, the result of it was that that was the worst night of my life. That's, that's when I found myself in the middle of the night on my hands and knees screaming at this loving God and saying, You let me down. You were supposed to keep me sober, and you didn't do it. And I'm never, ever going to believe in you again. I know today from reading the big book and reading the 12 and 12 that I was making a pretty demand and cursing God. But you see, folks, that's, that's the way it had to be for me. And the loving God that I didn't believe in reached out his hand. And for the first night in years, I had the soundest night of sleep that I had ever had. And it was the next morning that I picked up the phone and called the Pittsburgh Central Office and asked for help. That's a miracle. That's, I'm just, I'm no different than any one of you. No different than anyone. We're all, we all have our own little ways of getting here. And thank God we did. How did I get the way I was? I'm an only child. I'm older than most of you. Yeah, I hear all these young people come in and I hear their leads and they say, I got there and a bunch of old fogies all in their 60s in the room. I'm the reverse. I didn't get here until my late 40s. When I came out of the, my alcoholic fog and I looked at, in the rooms of alcohol, meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, everybody was younger than me. And you know what? I felt just like them. I was back where you guys in your 20s and 30s and even the teens. Emotionally. Emotionally, I was like that. I felt great. But I was, chronologically, I was a lot older than you. But I related to you. I related to you. Anyway, uh, I was an only child. Uh, if, uh, you know, I, 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 I analyzed. When I came into the program, I wanted to find out, why did I get, the, how did I get this way? You know, I'm looking for, for reasons. Looking for reasons. Why am I, am I an alcoholic? And today, and, uh, you know, after a while, I, I don't bother with that anymore. It's not important. The most important fact is that I am an alcoholic and I know it. And not only did I know it, that I do something about it. And today I am still doing something about my alcoholism. I'm doing something. But anyway, I was an only child. My father, if you believe in hereditary, I probably am. I, you know, if that's the reason. Uh, I came from, my father drank every single day of his life. It's, it's right after Christmas. When I was a kid, you know, even I taught my kids, you put out cookies and milk. When I was a kid, we put out a Braunschweiger sandwich and a bottle of beer for Santa Claus. Yeah. Okay. That's what we did in our household. So you can imagine that's the kind of a household we had. And, and I loved my father. 
I, I really love my father, and and his al, uh, you know, he never found the program. He died when he was 54 years old, and boy, was I, you know, when I went through 54, I was really on tenor hooks. We do take our family, you know, what happened to our family seriously, and we go through some crises and all that. I passed 54 and, with no problem. I, I don't, as I recall, no problem. But anyway, and I did like my father. You see, I forgave alcoholism in a man. A man worked hard, he drank hard, he deserved that drink. You know, he, de- he really did deserve. Uh, after my father passed away, and I was not, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll go into, he passed away after I was married. Uh, I grew up in, the home to me was normal, you know, whatever. I did live in a bakery. This is funny. My, my father and my grandfather were bakers. And you, you Northsiders, you know, I love you. I, I don't care what they say about that. That's where I was raised, on Northside, on Woodland Avenue, folks. We had a bakery there that my grandfather started, and it's, it's kind of ironic because I, when I was going to high school, when they made the donuts, that smell, that grease smell and the donut smell pervaded the whole house that got into the closet, and all my clothes smelled like donuts. You know. they used to, when I went to high school, they used to call me donuts. You know. I wanted to be called Ginger, but they, that's my middle name is Virginia, but they insisted on calling me donuts, you know. Isn't it ironic today? You know, today I go to every A meeting and there are donuts. <laughs> I guess I was destined, you know, to be an alcoholic, to drink donuts at AA meetings. But life was a little bit different because we had a business in the house and all of that. And, 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 and I, I, I really had, and I was a good girl. Oh, I got to share it. I'm a prude. I'm a prude. The only time I swore was when I had alcohol in me. They, that's how they knew when I was drinking. If I said hell or damn, they knew I was drunk. Yeah. That's a kind of a, I admit it, I'm a prude, I'm a Miss Goody Two-Shoes. I pleased everybody. Being an only child, uh, everybody fond of our Lois. I was our Lois. My grandmother called me our Lois this, our Lois that. Did very well in school, didn't want to disappoint anyone in the family. And for years and years, I was everybody's Lois, and the real Lois got lost somewhere along the way. By the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't know who Lois was belonged to everybody else. But in any event, um, I, I, I did very well in school and um, no drinking, no drinking at all. Uh, got to college, got a scholarship to the University of Pittsburgh, went to college, uh, joined a sorority, didn't drink. I joined the, the non-drinking sorority. All my friend, none of my friends drank. Uh, Miss Goody Two-Shoes, uh, occasionally. There, there was, in my high school, and in, when I went to high school and when I went to college, drinking was not as prevalent as it is today. My own kids have been exposed to uh, drinking and drugs. Drugs weren't heard of at all. You know, but, uh, so it, it really was not, and I wasn't interested. I was interested in uh, social climbing, in being well-liked, being popular. You know what that is? People placer people pleaser and, and my alcoholism came out in that form uh, very popular very, uh, in my junior year I met two things I started off as a pre-med major uh, and, and another thing in, in when I went to college uh, that was before women's lib and I, I, I would like to talk a little bit about that women's lib came along <laughs> during my drinking years when I don't remember everything and that did that, you know I think I look back on it now it did have some effect on, on me and, and maybe I'll share that with you later but in any event, um, 
In my junior year in college, I met two things. I met organic chemistry, <laughs> and I met the man I was to marry. <laughs> and that did it. The dreams of going to medical school went down the drain, and it's a good thing they did. Uh, oh, boy. It's a good thing they did. But um, I graduated, and my husband graduated six months after me, and... Um, where he got his job, and he's with a large company in Pittsburgh, and, and his first job was in, in Los Angeles, in the Los Angeles office. So we kept up our, our courtship. I don't believe in relationships. I believe in commitments. And uh, we kept up our courtship through the meal, and we broke up a couple times. But uh, anyway, eventually, he, he, yeah, he was worried about money. He always worried about money. When I came into the program, he said, do you talk about how much money you spend on booze? Do you ever go to an AA meeting? Do you talk about the money you spend on booze? We don't pay any attention to that. Yeah. But I'll tell you another thing. We really get tight. You know, alcoholics really tighten up those purse strings when you get drunk. Well, that's kind of a carryover or a hangover or whatever you want to say. Anyway, uh, Jim and I were married, and we moved to California. And uh, Jim introduced me to uh, the cocktail party and the martini. And I hated them when I first drank them. I, when I went out, if I had a drink, when I was in college, it, if I went out and had a drink, I was talking about this the other night to someone, I had a Brandy Alexander, you know, with sweet, chocolatey. I'm, st I'm also a chocoholic, too. But that, that, that was my drink of choice when I was first starting to drink. But when we got married, uh, and then at that time, too, to get along in business, or so it seemed, and I loved it, you had to drink. You had to be able to drink and play bridge. Now, at that time, I told you, my mind was very important to me. And I never drank when I played bridge because it screwed up my bridge game, you know. And I knew that. I knew that. So I would not drink. I was able to control that. And I do believe that I drank socially for a number of years. My, the progression of my alcoholism was so slow and so insidious. And it just crept on, not day by day or month by month, but year by year. Each year I drank. This is incredible to some of you who really jumped into booze with, with both feet. But mine was a very slow, insidious process. I didn't have any problems with booze. I do remember one New Year's Eve having a hangover from drinking, and I blamed it on the scotch and said, I'm not going to drink scotch anymore. You know. I blamed it on the scotch. But it wasn't serious. It wasn't bad. And my husband obviously was not a drinker. After we had my two my two older children were born in in uh, we lived in Pasadena, El Monte, Alhambra. The two older children were born in California, and uh, we moved. He was transferred to Wichita, Kansas. I left Wichita, Kansas, and again, uh, there was not that much drinking. It was at the company level, and it was social drinking, and we played bridge. And this is this is where we begin. One of the things that we had a lot of fun with was singing songs. Now, my husband had a repertoire of dirty songs, and this prude would not sing them, but she would accompany him on the piano. You know, I'd play the song, and they'd all be singing, and I still remember everywhere we lived, we ended up with a gang of people who liked to sing and harmonize, you know, and as, as the years went by and the people went on and the drinking increased, I remember my husband standing around the piano saying, the more you drink, the better it sounds. And we really believed that. We really believed that. Somewhere along the way, we made a tape of our saying, listen to it the next day. It was awful. This is the end of side one. Please stop your machine and turn the tape over.
because always been a part of my life, I suppose. Anyway, uh, that, that was the fun part of the drinking, and it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Then we moved back to Pittsburgh, and by this time, uh, the uh, white picket fence and, and the, everything began, the negatives started coming into my life. Everything was hunky-dory until some negatives. My father had died. My father died the night before my youngest daughter was born, and I was glad I didn't have to go back to Pittsburgh uh, because, uh, I, I don't know, I, 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 I was glad. I, I asked, I thank God for having me have that baby at that time, so I didn't get, see, I didn't want to see my father the way he was in the end. I know today from my relatives what a terrible, terrible way to die from alcoholism. I remember in my drinking, I'm going to drink myself to death. That's an awful way to go. That's an awful, awful way to go from what my, my family tells me. But anyway, um, we got back to Pittsburgh and we lived in Pleasant Hills and by this time after my father's death, my mother started drinking. And I, I, the attitude towards my mother's drinking was so far, so different from my father's drinking. I hated her guts. How could she do this? I can remember one time I had my kids and, and we got in a car, we were going over to see my grandmother and my mother was so proud of her driving. Oh, Lord. And my mother, we went sailing around a corner and she went into a concrete wall and my, my son moved his head. I was so angry with her and I made a vow, I will never let my kids go with her unless somebody else is with them. And I vowed I will never be like her, never. You see, I forgave my father's alcoholism, but I could not accept my mother's alcoholism. In the long run, my mother somehow found Alcoholics Anonymous when I was in my addiction, and she tried to get me to call AA, but no. You remember the old ad, no mother, I'd rather do it myself. Uh, that was then I was in the throes of my own uh, alcoholism. Anyway, uh, from there, uh, I was anxious. I was pregnant with my third child. My husband was having difficulties at work and all kinds of stuff like that. And all these negatives were in. And the poor me's came. The poor me's. And there, there was more responsibility. The children were, were getting older. And for years and years, I, I had to become, I suppose you'd call it, the, you know, the strength of the family. And, and people were dependent. And I felt, I began to feel what I call trapped. A lot of us, when we're drinking, have that feeling of being trapped. Can't get out of this. And, and we moved to, Jim was transferred to New York City, and, and we moved and we lived in a, a, a nice well, uh, town, Westport, Connecticut. Fancy town. Oh, God, the drinking was great there. And this is where my alcoholism really, really began to progress. This is when I started running away from home, staying in a motel, took a bottle of gin, uh, hell with family. This is whenever I began to drink to the point where I, you know, I would uh, go to sleep, no matter where I was. Yeah. My husband would say, you passed out. I did not. I just went to sleep on the kitchen floor. <laughs> I, I, I rationalized. It was real nice. The kind of, I heard a lead long after I came into the program, and he did the same thing. And he really made sense. He said, well, I had to think. And that's what I did. I had to think. You know, everything was kind of coming, and I had to think. So I'd lie down on the kitchen floor, and right, you know, we had a refrigerator. It had the nice warm vent on the bottom, and the warm air would come out, and I'd be there. And I'm thinking. I'm thinking until I'm gone, you know. So my, my drinking, obviously, was, was 
being being a big problem for the family. My daughter came home from Girl Scout camp. She got off the bus, and my husband and the rest of the family picked her up. Where's mom? We didn't know. I was off in a motel somewhere with a bottle of gin. See? That, that, was, that was me. And uh, I, I won't go into all that drunk log or anything like that because um, I was just like you. You know, you know what I'm talking about. I, this, this is the point where I started shopping at the different liquor stores. And I thought when I came here, I was the only one that did that. This is where the actor, the actress in me, see the big book wrote, wrote it all about me. You know, I used to plan my trips to the liquor store. This is before I was too far gone. But I used to plan my trips. Uh, and I, I, I would go into the liquor store and I would say, let me see, what did he tell me to get? I can't remember. <laughs> I reach in my purse and I pull out this list. I knew darn well what I wanted, you know. But this is part of the act. This is part of this. And I'd say, oh yeah, he said a half gallon of gin. Yeah, right. And of course, he reached a point where he knew when I had been there last time, and I did the shopping. When I was in Connecticut, I was belonged to my sorority alumni association, and and uh, one of the first one of my first assignments as social chairman was to put on this wine and cheese tasting party. Boy, that's right up my alley, I'll tell you. I got to know the, the man, I'll never forget him, Mr. Regent of the Budget Liquor Store. He and I became good, good friends. Didn't take him long to convince me that it was easier to buy the case, booze by the case and have it around the house all the time. Oh, yeah, he's a good friend. Good friend. But you see, I knew that Mr. Regent knew how often I was in there, so I better go to the Compo Liquor Store because they didn't know me there. And that carried, that pattern carried throughout the rest of my drinking. And there was a ritual. You know, my biggest problem, I, there were a couple big problems that I had at this period of time. I was drinking martinis, my, my drink of choice. But getting, getting the, the bottles into the house was a problem. You had to wait until the kids were in school and the husband was at work and, and all of that. Getting the booze into the house, and that, had, that took a lot of planning, and we're good planners, you know. That, that was problem enough, but my biggest problem was getting rid of the empties. That, that was the big problem. That's why I quit drinking martinis, because you not only had to get rid of a gin bottle, you had to get rid of a vermouth bottle, too. And I don't know what I would have done in these days when you have to separate the trash for recycling. <laughs> you poor alcoholics that came in recently, boy. You know, it was a big problem for me whenever you could mix them all together and hide the bottles under the trash. You can't do that anymore. They, you got problems if you're an active alcoholic today. I love you, you know, boy. But you'll find a way. You'll find a way. We are ingenious. But anyway, uh, that's why I quit drinking martinis. And, of course, being the house nut that I was or my husband or whatever and the smart and everything like that, I knew, I knew that uh, I, I wanted to be healthy. I didn't want to get like one of those bums. So at that time, as I recall, the astronauts were uh, circling the Earth and they were advertising Tang. Now Tang had all the nutrition that you needed, you see. And Tang, you could put your mixer in the refrigerator and you could drink all you wanted and they wouldn't find. They were checking my bottles, you know, marking the bottles. The ones that, that were out that they knew about, but they weren't checking the ones that were hidden all over the place. But uh, in any event, uh, that, was so, that was so legitimate to have that tang. And I was drinking gin and tang. If it's good enough for the astronauts, it's good enough for me. And I would be nutritious. I wouldn't be malnourished, you know. 
That's the thinking of this alcoholic, you know. Around this time when we moved back to Pittsburgh after five, six, seven years in New York City, we moved back to Pittsburgh, and again, I, I'm really in, but we moved back to Pittsburgh and things were going to be different, right? Things are always going to be different. I don't know about you, but they never were for me. They never were for me. I was just, I, as they say in AA, I took me with me. Every time, every minute, I took me with me. So we're back in Pittsburgh now, and I'm really, really getting bad. And this is the time when I started um, calling people on the phone. I was the kind of an alcoholic that uh, held in all the anger. I didn't know what to do with anger. I, I, I didn't know, so I stuffed it. Stuffed it way down there. And the only way that anger could come out was if I had a drink. And then it would erupt like a volcano. One of the things I used to do was call people up and tell them, tell them off. I can't tell you how many people I called up and told up, and I don't even know. I don't even know. Things are very, very, very hazy from this point on. I talked about women's lib. When you're a trapped person, you see, when I was young, the only choice I had of a, of a, a career secretary, which I was, uh, or you could be a, a, a nurse, or you could be an airline stewardess, that's glamorous. You know, you get to serve all that booze on planes. Uh, but uh, now, you see, there are more career openings and all of this, and, and I needed to work for my own private stock of booze. That's the only reason I worked. I was supposed to be working to put the kids through college, but I can't hang on. I earned it. It's my money. And I'm hiding my booze all over the house, and this is whenever my husband, or my husband is not an alcoholic. He never will be. This is when my husband org uh, started organizing. Okay, today, he line up all three kids and say, Today's the day we're going to hunt for mother's booze. <laughs> one person would go upstairs, another one would go downstairs, and they'd all go looking for my hidden bottles. And they were all over the house. I, you know, this, this is another thing. That we all, I never, my biggest fear when I was drinking, of running out of booze. I hated holidays then because the liquor stores are closed. Or holidays when the kids are home from school and I can't drink like I want to. You know, boy, that becomes a problem. But any, I, I'm so grateful. Holidays, I'm happy. Like they close the liquor stores, and I look at all these drunks that come to our meetings, and I know what they're going through. I know what they're going through. But anyway, they would go hunting for mother's booze, and this is a ritual. This this went on all the time. And my husband would, they were, he was so angry with me, so angry with me, and he would stand me in front of the kitchen sink, and he would uncork that gin bottle and he'd hold the bottle up real high and I would watch all that gin trickling down into the sink and he was angry and he was lecturing and I was saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I can't tell you how many times I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And was I sorry? No way. Because all the time I'm saying I'm sorry, what's really going in my head well, they haven't found the one in the hat box yet. <laughs> they haven't found the one in the charcoal bag. I had to drink. I had to have that booze. And that's uppermost in my, no, my mind no matter what. And I couldn't run out of booze. This weather, this big snowstorm we had, I live off of Route 19 North. This weather, there were only uh, trucks. No vehicles on there. The dead of winter. There's Lois. They took the keys to the car. I couldn't have driven anyway. They always took the keys to the car away from me. I walked to that liquor store in the, in the weather that, was, that we had last weekend. I 
had to have my booth. And I'm walking in the middle of 19 with semi-trailers, no cars, only trucks could get through. And there's Lois, trudging through the snow, praying. I told you I never lost my, I, I still pray to God, praying, God, let's make sure the liquor store clerk gets to work. <laughs> and I got there, and <laughs> he did. The liquor store clerk got there. And I'd get my booze and I'd be marching back home in all this snow, hugging this bottle, hugging this precious commodity, saying, please God, don't let me drop it. <laughs> Funny, sad, both at the same time, both at the same time. That's what I did. That's what alcohol did to me. And as I said to you, that's what I, uh, what, what I looked like. I wanted to tell you about the women's lib. I, I, I told you the anger was stuffed. And, and the only reason I include this, and I kind of asked God a little bit if I could throw this story in, because my sponsor loves it. I remember the night. One night, my husband, as I said, I'm Miss Goody Two Shoes. We, we're old-fashioned people. Uh, my husband, the kids call him Archie Bunker. You know, he's old-fashioned man. I'm glad he is. Because, as I said, when he took his marriage vows, he stuck with, with me through all of this, through the misery and the, everything that I put my family and him through. He stuck by me. We, we were married 43 years last November. And my daughter, I'm told, I learned this long after I got sober, my daughter said to him, my oldest daughter went to him and said, you ought to divorce her. She's nothing but a drunk. And my husband looked at her, my daughter told me this, my husband looked at her and said, I can't do that. I took a marriage vow to stick by her in sickness and in health. And that's something. And that's something. Anyway, um, my husband's an old-fashioned man, and he, you know, he came from where the man was a breadwinner and came home, sat down, got his slippers and, and all of this. And, and this is, women's lib began to sink in on this alcoholic brain and everything like that. And uh, one of his favorite sayings was, uh, uh, lay some dessert on me, you know, after dinner or something like that. This particular night, this particular night I had planned, it was a nice homemade chocolate brownie, scoop of vanilla ice cream on top of that. Some nice fudge chocolate sauce on top of that, a squirting of whipped cream on top of that, and a maraschino cherry on top. And my husband says, these are ready. And I said, just about. And he said, lay some dessert on me. And I said, see, the boost is beginning to work. I said, what did you say? He said, lay some dessert on me. My three, I'll never forget. I, 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 you know, drunk as I was, I still remember it because it was, I went in there and he was sitting in his chair. It was after dinner. We were watching the six o'clock news, whatever it was. There was a TV table in front of him and he expected me to put that dessert on the table, but I didn't. I took it, turned it upside down over his head, all this. Fudge sauce, ice cream, whipped cream running down him. And I laughed. Oh, was I, I was so proud of myself. Women's lip is great, y'all. Wow, I was so, and I was laughing and laughing and laughing. And, and did you ever really enjoy, you know, this when you're drunk? Did you ever sober up real quick? 
Why's my husband? My husband was so angry. He just shoved that TV table on the floor, stomped out, and by then I saw my three kids sitting on a couch just opposite. And the look of terror, the look of disgust, the look on their faces sobered me up like nothing could ever sober any woman alcoholic up. And again, the guilt, the remorse, it was a brief moment of, of joy until I saw the looks on their faces. And I've never forgotten it. Never forgotten. I'm happy to tell you that today, every Christmas or holiday, the kids often bring up, Hey, Mom, remember the time you laid some dessert on Dad? <laughs> How forgiving. How forgiven. How about them? Well, I told you, I got, got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm not going to go. It was a struggle for me. I was an analyzer, everything like that. I, um, I do have to share with you some of the experience. I, I, I did work the steps, and the, work, the steps really helped me. I told you I'd lost Lois somewhere along the way. And the steps helped me learn about me. And I learned who Lois was. And you know, I'm so grateful. Alcoholics Anonymous taught me and I came to believe that I was not a bad mother. I was a sick mother. I was not a bad wife. I was a sick wife. Thank God for that. And that helped me greatly, greatly. And, I, and my sponsor helped me through the steps. And if I had taken the fourth step when I wanted to, I was going to rush through all these 12 steps and go out and save the world, you know. Uh, because I was smarter than the rest of you. Ha ha. Ha ha. What did I learn a lot? I learned, I've been humbled many, 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 many times in this program, and I deserved it. I deserved it. But I do want to share with you something I learned about Lois, and I'm grateful for the knowledge. But one of the other things that I learned was about you, about my fellow alcoholics. And I had to get to know my fellow alcoholics. And I not only had to learn to get to know you, I had to learn to work with you, whether I liked you or not, no matter what. And that's what the traditions have done for me. The traditions have become an extension of the 12 steps in my recovery. I have tried to, uh, you know, what do, we, what do you do with the traditions? You use them to beat people over the head. You can't do that. It's against the traditions, you know. I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that at all. The traditions are guides to good behavior. And they're an extension of the 12 steps where we learn to work together. To carry out our primary purpose, and that's to carry the message to the alcoholics. And what better place can you learn to do that but in a home group? And my home group is probably the experiences I've had. I've had the most wonderful, marvelous experiences at group anniversaries. Oh, my goodness. Aren't they wonderful? Learning to work together to accomplish a goal. A lot of you that know me, and I include this story in my lead many, many times, and I learned so much from this story, not only about me, but about you. I belonged to the Perry Group on Sunday night, and I had about a year of sobriety, and they asked me to be in charge of the food for their anniversary. Now, Perry Group, uh, we had a couple past delegates. We had people who were very involved in service. And I had heard, I didn't tell you about my first AA meeting was a beginner's meeting. And I am so grateful. I learned not about alcoholism. 
I learned about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I learned about the steps, the traditions. I learned, I learned at that very first AA meeting that we have no dues in AA. And the reason we don't have dues in AA because we've already paid our dues. And while I want to tell you, I paid a high price to get here. We all have. We've paid a high price to get here. And I learned all this, and, and, and it was just marvelous. And I just gobbled up all this information. I just couldn't learn enough. And I knew all about unity. I knew there were three sides to the AA triangle. There's more than recovery in this program. And that unity and that service is extremely, extremely important. And I knew I loved unity. I just loved it. So at this first anniversary, I said to them, yo, I had a lot of experience in throwing parties. And I said, why don't we have a punch bowl at 5 o'clock, a happy hour punch bowl? And a group conscious looked at me and said, do you ever hear this from your home group? We don't do it that way. Yeah? Your home group say that to you, the long-timers in here? We don't do it that way. We all, yeah, whatever. We have coffee. That's too reminiscent. That's too reminiscent, you know, of punch bowls and all of that. And I sheepishly said, well, okay. But I had another brilliant idea. I said, why don't we have some, get some shake and bake? It was a fairly new product on the market. Why don't we get some shake and bake and get some chicken and we can, all the comm group members can get together in the kitchen Sunday afternoon and we can shake and bake the chicken and we'll have unity and we'll learn to get to know each other and everything like that. And then we'll have this chicken. And they again, the group conscious said, we don't do it that way. We always have cold cuts and covered dishes. And I was crushed. I was crushed so much in the first years of my sobriety. You know, I, I was always crushed. But the, the amazing part, I didn't give up. I kept coming back and I listened partially. And it helped me so much. Yeah. I have five more years of sobriety. The group anniversary is coming up. I'm temporarily sponsoring a beautiful young lady, Cecile. And Cecile, uh, you know, Cecile... Uh, said we, we decided to put her in charge of the food for the anniversary party. And Cecile comes to the group conscious. Cecile, let me tell you, she, she was beautiful. And she was ah, the Penn State beer drinking champion at spring break down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Never would have known. She's a beautiful girl, beautiful girl. So Cecile was in charge of the food, and we had the group conscious meeting, and Cecile says, I have an idea. And she says, why don't we get some shake and bake and some chicken? We get together on Sunday afternoon in the kitchen and we can make this chicken. And I thought, ha, she's in first. I've got to protect this poor girl. You know, she's going to get the same treatment I got. You know, oh, oh yeah, I, I, I'll explain to her later. You know what the group conscience said? What a wonderful idea! <laughs> Let's do it! And I think for the next 10 years, they had chicken, baked chicken. You know, I still can't eat chicken today. <laughs> Talk about humility. Was I humbled? Was I humbled? 
Group experiences, boy, can you learn from them. I remember the time when my Wednesday night group, I, I, I've had different home groups. I've been honored and privileged to start some groups, too. Boy, you learn a lot when you start a group. You learn an awful lot when you start a group. And I, we wanted to do everything right, you know, perfectionists. We, wanted to, we didn't want to break any traditions. We didn't want to do, we wanted to do everything right. I can remember the time that my Wednesday night home group, we had our anniversary, and I had the idea of balloons. I thought it'd be nice to have balloons. You see, and I called Giant Eagle. Giant Eagle had uh, balloons, uh, helium-inflated balloons. And I ordered 30. I figured we have 12 tables. We'll have three tables. I had all worked out. We'll get 36 balloons. I ordered 36 helium-filled balloons. I did not stop to think of how I was going to get them to the meeting. Yeah. I had a little hatchback Dodge Shadow at the time. <laughs> I came to Giant Eagle, I went in and got my balloons, and I'm hanging on to both of them, and I got to the, the express checkout line, of course, and I couldn't get my money out, you know, I, I, how am I going to pay for it? I couldn't, my purse, some nice man behind me said, oh, hold your balloons, so he had my balloons for me, and I got my money out, and I paid for them, and whew, that, that's over, got to the car, how am I going to get them in the car? Yeah, all hatchback will work, hatchback will work. I was in there, we had three other shoppers in Giant Eagle trying to stuff these balloons in the hatchback. Thank God I only had two weeks to go, two blocks to go to the meeting. I was driving to the meeting and the balloons all around me and I'm saying, geez God, keep them out of my vision, you know, I'll wreck a car. I have never volunteered, don't have balloons at your anniversary party. Take it. This is the voice of experience unless you have a good way. Uh, Betty, uh, we had a, a, a grapevine party. Uh, our district had a grapevine party celebrating the 50th anniversary of the grapevine. And, and I ordered balloons and I, I, and I thought, see, we learn. We learn hard way, don't we? But they put them in garbage bags and Betty was on standby to take some of them if I couldn't get them all in my car. Yeah. See, boy, what you learn by being active in a home group, you know? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful? I remember, uh, I remember, oh, that home group means so much to me. Do you remember, do, were you as excited as I was the first time someone asked me to read the steps at a meeting? God, I was so excited. They trust me. They believe in me. Do you remember when someone gave you a little job to do in AA and indicated they trust you? Oh, that's marvelous. Uh, Herb knows, and people that I lead know, that I have successfully turned over my lead to my higher power, and at some point in time I start getting messages from him. Alice, it's time to shut up and sit down, and I'm starting to get these messages. I'll break off in the middle of a story or something like that because I'm getting the messages. His timing is much better. I never look at my watch. Never looked. I learned because the first lead I ever gave, I spent the whole time on my childhood and I didn't even get my first drink. And I knew I, that's not the right way to lead, right? That's why I start with what I was like when I got here. There's, there's madness to my methods, you know. But anyway, I'm getting this message, but I do want to share something. One time I heard a man lead. I was at a service thing or something in, in Washington, D.C. I'll never forget this man. I do have his tape and I don't have many tapes. But I, this man said, oh, he was marvelous, and he was so funny. And he said, you know, I love to hear you laugh. And I really believe this. When you laugh and I share some of these stories, sad, happy, whatever, and you're laughing, you're not laughing at me. You're laughing with me. You're laughing with me. And you know what else you're telling me when you laugh and you smile? You're saying, we understand. 
We understand. Yeah, you're an alcoholic like me. And there's something more to that. You're also saying, when you say, when you laugh with me, you're saying, we understand. You're also saying, we forgive you for what you've done. That's what you tell me. That's what I see in your faces. My God, if you can forgive me, how can I not forgive myself? How can I not forgive myself? What a joy. What a privilege to be here. And again, I'll tell you, if you liked anything I had to say, thank your higher power and thank my higher power. It's not me. It's not me. It's a power much greater than me that has given me life. And the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he works through you. Through everyone else. Thank you so much. I'm just getting overwhelmed now, and I'm going to start to cry. So thank you for being here. I love you all. Thank you very much.